Welcome to Super Context, a podcast autopsy of media. How we consume it and how it informs our everyday culture. I'm Christian Sager, a writer and a designer. And I'm Charlie Bennett, a librarian and a radio raconteur. Each episode is us trying to understand the entertainment world that we all live in. Just a little bit better. Today's episode is about Hyperion by Dan Simmons. This 1989 science fiction novel is acclaimed for its unique structure, references, and style. But we take a closer look at how it interrogates our expectations of genre to explore a complex host of themes. And then we reduce it to ice cream. You can follow along with show notes at patreon.com slash supercontext where you can leave us a comment or write us an email, supercontextpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear what you thought of this novel, and do you want to see it made into a television show? Chris, you wouldn't believe the amount of time I spent trying to understand a definition of science fiction three or four years ago. Mm. It went on and on and on. It was in meetings. It was in memos. It was in focus groups. We were trying to figure out a collection development policy at the library for the science fiction collection. Yeah, I was going to say, because you work at an institution that is renowned for its archive of original science fiction and fantasy pulp novels. That's right. Shout out to the late and beloved Bud Foote. And one of the things that came out of that work or that research into the genre of science fiction was a kind of split uh, conclusion. And it's the two conclusions you would expect, and they are simultaneously true. Um No one knows what the fuck science fiction is. They know it when they see it, but they can't really explain it. Okay. And there is a way to very carefully create a checklist to build a rubric that decides if something is science fiction or not. Mm. Do you think collection development librarians actually do this or do they just go with their gut? Well, the Library of Congress has a collection development policy in which they try to parse fantasy and science fiction. And it is hilarious. I would like to read you a quote from their d- definition of fantasy, which is going to knock your socks off because you're never going to have thought of it this way ever before. Okay. You ready? Me. Yeah. Fantasy usually requires a willing suspension of disbelief. That's it? That is a direct quote from the Library of Congress collection development policy. Okay. Yeah. Um, but then they follow through. They say often fantasy adapts, reworks, or provides an alternate telling to myth or folk tales. Mm -hmm. Uh, They involve alternate realities or alternate universes, rely on a displacement of time or space, and make use of elements of the horrific supernatural, paranormal, or the occult. Okay. The alternate reality and alternate universe thing does a hell of a lot of heavy lifting, doesn't it? Well, sort of. I'm trying to think of like a projects that like run the line between fantasy and sci-fi and the first thing that comes to mind and i said this to you off air uh, in relation to today's episode is star wars star wars seems like sci-fi but a lot of people say no it's actually a fantasy western yeah it was given the name space opera so by these rules it doesn't seem like it is a fantasy by the library of congress's rules right uh, science fiction gets a, a lot more check marks, and I, I just want to breeze through these. 
It's interesting. It's um, more of a intent kind of criteria as opposed to a quality because it says science fiction is usually speculative, assumes change as a given, projects a storyline into the future or into a alternate reality, (laughs) explores a problem in technology, culture, or philosophy, presents an atmosphere of scientific credibility regardless of the reality, which is my favorite quality there. Presents an atmosphere of scientific credibility regardless of the reality, i.e. bullshits better about how the world works. Okay, that's what you think that means? Yes. So let's already... We're going to back out here. Okay. The reason why you're saying this is because you discovered something about yourself reading Dan Simmons' Hyperion. And I that was is, reminded of something, yeah. You don't like hard science fiction. <laughs> well, it turns out I don't like anything I used to like. <laughs> See, I don't know I'm... necessarily that I think the, the, the statement presents an atmosphere of scientific credibility regardless of the reality means... Uh, soft science fiction. Oh, I don't think that even means soft science fiction. I'm saying that if you um, very carefully explain the biology and cosmology of Middle Earth, yeah, right. Yeah, does it make it science fiction? If you said if there is a a Hobbit scientist with beakers and who says they've you know figured yeah. out the equations that run the world, what does that mean? If you can say the faster than light drive works on a quantum interceptor. Right. Or what's the uh, the flux capacitor? That's scientific credibility, regardless of reality. Mm, it's okay. it's bullshit is is what I read there. And then they have a little sub like a, a subset. They say not all science fiction takes place in the future, involves space travel, describes technology beyond current reality or deals with alien cultures. But those are common elements. So this is an interesting distinction. I don't think the creators of science fiction and fantasy would agree with these. So it's, it's interesting to see how the catalogers of, of yeah. the, these books are it's looking like, at them differently. It's like an assessment of a car crash, right? Mm. Instead of yeah. an assessment. This is an of, actuary's checklist. Yeah. yeah. Instead of asking about destinations, it's, it's more like, well, what happened that made this thing stop? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the only reason that I allowed myself to fall down this rabbit hole of genres is because in the research, a lot of discussion of what the genre of this novel is and whether Dan Simmons um, should be pigeonholed in a genre or, you know, what he thinks of genre kind of came out. Mm-hmm. And also I had the same reaction to Hyperion as I do to the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And I, you would think Lord of the Rings would be pretty firmly established in the fantasy category. Totally. And yet for both of them, I had a strong, um, soporific admiration of both. I just kept like grinding to a halt. These well-written books are like quicksand for me. I cannot fucking read them. Um, the thing that stands out to me the most out of this library of Congress distinction is that they point out, they say, they claim that science fiction explores problems in technology, culture, and philosophy beyond their current states, but fantasy does not. And I think that's odd. (laughs) I I think the definition of a problem in technology, culture, and philosophy is what's at hand there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, okay. Well, 
Based on this, though, and based on what everybody else calls it, Dan Simmons' Hyperion certainly seems to be science fiction. Oh, yeah, uh, it's totally a fantasy science fiction. I'm sorry, a science <laughs> fictional fantasy. Yeah. Um, this is our last co-producer topic. It is. It comes to us from producer Chris Marlton. Thank you, Chris. And it is a 1989 science fiction novel that was written by an American writer named Dan Simmons. This is the first in a series, which is often the case with science fiction and fantasy novels. Um, it's The series is called The Hyperion Cantos, within which there are four novels and one set of short stories. Charlie read all of them. I'm surprised. <laughs> You know, I, I also love that the uh, connection to the Lord of the Rings, not only my personal reaction, but also uh, Hyperion is a massive novel broken up into chunks. Uh, yeah. It's it's two yeah. books broken up into four published books mm -hmm. because it's just too big. Yeah. I, when I read stuff like this or, uh, oh, Vandermeer, when we did Vandermeer's Annihilation, yeah. I think these are are meant to be one book um kind of like if if gravity's rainbow were to be published nowadays it would be like four books in a science fiction weird trilogy yeah except for mm. it wouldn't be a trilogy it'd be i don't know yeah. <laughs> what if it was published now it would be um a collection of zines Published Probably, by someone yeah. who had no interest in making any money. Um, I'm, I told you that I just finished The Vore by Brian Catling. And uh, uh, that is a book where I'm, it's a three-part series. And I'm like, this is very clearly just one book. Yeah. So Hyperion is a book that's been on shelves for me for a long time. Mm -hmm. You know, I see Dan Simmons' name a lot, but also I just see Hyperion. I think because... Hyperion is also a literary reference. It's a, is it a Shelley poem? No, a it's a Keats, Keats poem, I yeah. believe. And, uh, and also that's, a, it's a moon, you know, the word is out there enough that my eye is caught by the big fat Hyperion on the big fat mass market book. And also Dan Simmons was a writer who got kind of connected to who uh, Jordan, Robert Jordan, Wheel of Time, or Terry Brooks, sort of Shannara, without actually being part of that crew for me. I don't know exactly How's how. How's that? I think because of folks I hung out with or my roommates okay. who had like fat stacks of yeah. things. You know, like over here is the stuff that's like, you know, big world building science fiction and fantasy. Over here is the political philosophy, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, and Hyperion would be up against these other books. I had a different experience from that. Um, so I first came to Simmons because I was researching the graphic novel that I wrote 10 years ago, The Cabinet. And I was about halfway through the research. And somewhere along the research, I was like, oh, somebody wrote a novel that's very close to what I'm about to <laughs> put out as a graphic novel. And I started reading it. Uh, and this is The Terror, which most people know now because there's a TV show adaptation of it that was on AMC. Um, but, uh, and I read like maybe the first chapter or two of the terror and I was like, wow, this is really good. And he's like in my head cause this is so close to what I, what I ended up writing. Oh, nice. And I thought I have to stop. Like I can't read more of this because then it's going to influence the final right. product of the cabinet. You're already going to have to tell this story when you're in court. Yeah. And say, yes, I read the beginning <laughs> right. yeah. to, to understand. I did not read the rest. So I put it down. Um, my wife 
a couple years later was like, oh, I just read this book Hyperion and it is amazing. It's like one of my favorite sci-fi books ever. She, she has read all of the cantos. She's read all the short stories, I believe. Uh, and then I found out a couple years after that, that my then boss and his childhood friend, Bradley Cooper, uh, had acquired the rights to Dan Simmons Hyperion. Holy shit. And were working on a screenplay for it. I can't imagine this as a movie. I can't, not at all. Now that I've read it, I can't either. Um, I suspect it'll end up as a television show. But uh, so he's a guy for me that's just always kind of been on the periphery. And I've been like, that guy's good. But I just haven't, I haven't gone into his work really deep until now because Chris Marlton asked us to. And uh, let's just throw this down before we get into it. I really liked this book. I got after starting out with a lot of trepidation. Yeah. The first chapter was hard. The first chapter was like wading through molasses for me. Yeah. And I was like, Oh no, it's going to be like this. Yeah. When I, you told me that before I started and then I started reading it and I had the strange experience of, uh, the reverse of your experience with the book. Cause I read the beginning and it wasn't like, I didn't say to myself, Oh, this is exactly the kind of book I love, but it was very comfortable. It was almost nostalgic to read, you know, the console played at the Steinway piano while the stars glittered above, you know, like this very sort of the pulp bar- stuff, Baroque kind of, you know, um, mm-hmm. science fiction description. Yeah. Um, by the time I got what, 70 pages in, I was just like, God, I, I sound like a Philistine. Um, I was drowning in the world building. I just could not, I could not keep things straight. I couldn't, I couldn't drive my emotional investment any farther than just a little bit of, Mm -hmm. okay, you know, I, there's nothing wrong with this book. Mm -hmm. It was about as far as I could get. And I, I just, I ground my way through it. And, uh, I, I feel lucky that, um, I was not really into it because when it ends and it just ends, I was like, Oh, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) well i I mean um yeah so whereas i had the opposite reaction like i i loved it in the middle and you want the next book right now uh yeah i'm curious and luckily they're here in the house so i will read them um but i think i think this is important for us to set up before we get into how this book was written and how it was received and oh my god there are so many interpretations of what it means this is a rich rich book of interpretation it yeah. clearly means a lot to a lot of people and yeah. so that that is something that i have to admire also that there is enough in this book that a lot of people are are turned around by it or transformed mm-hmm. by it well i would just say i see a little bit of my own writing tendencies in Dan Simmons process, both when I read the terror and this, um, we just, I, it feels like we think in a similar way to like how huh. we, we plot out things. Interesting. Um, and so I related to it, but at the same time, I agree with you. The world building was exhausting and that this is, is maybe a question for, for, pop culture items nowadays, which is like how much world building is too much world building. Um, and especially post game of Thrones. Um, the first thing I said to you when you told me you didn't like it because of the world building was, yeah, but you read like five game of Thrones novels. And those, (laughs) those are like (laughs) by far more egregious when it comes to like, 
here's a flag and this is what this flag means and then this guy was wearing this banner and the color of his shoes meant this and it's just like and this is why shut I up. cannot dismiss Dan Simmons outright and yeah. I certainly cannot say oh it was bad okay I, and, and that goes back to the Lord of the Rings thing like I know that Lord of the Rings is a quality work I know that it's transformative for people I know that it's really important and 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 beloved also I like the movies you know mm-hmm. like I like the story but there's something about the writing something about the way that the world is being delivered something about how something about how the connections are being made for me so what we're talking about here then is style so we're all on the same page about terminology you're talking about and I am too style of writing and how he world builds not what he builds with his worlds yeah okay although Hyperion does suffer from the occasional like um, (laughs) farcasters and outsters and you know the which uh, is style and is something that is discussed by another critic in this uh, episode yeah I just I think of um, what's the younglings right isn't that the the word for kids in the Jedi movies oh yeah right Yeah. yeah or there's a little bit of really is that is that a word people would use Surely it would change just from overuse. I don't know, Charlie. I mean, I, it, this seems to be a hang up for you. Like, not not everybody has this hang up, but you're also not, not alone in that. There's a critic later on. We'll get to it. And this person has the exact same complaint as you, yeah. which is just like just, all of these words n- are bullshit. Normally, people who have any of these hang ups don't grind their way through this book. so let's get into it dan simmons he's an american author he's known for writing hyperion and the books that followed it the terror as i mentioned he also i think this was his first novel was the song of kali he goes all over the place genre which is named it's called a horror novel isn't it yeah and the terror is a horror novel hyperion sci-fi there are very strong elements of horror in here i think that's another reason why i enjoyed it the the deity that they're trying to figure out that they're interacting with the shrike is yeah. basically pinhead just showing up and slaughtering people. The shrike is some scary stuff. Yeah. And, and, and the sort of um, suicide, like the calmly suicidal nature of the whole journey mm-hmm. that the characters are on is, is dreadful. Right. Yeah. Full of dread. Yeah. Um, so, this is from a bio about Simmons. Then we'll get into some quotes from him himself. He, he didn't think necessarily that he was qualified to be a professional writer. And in 1981, he'd submitted stories to two magazines. Uh, both of them went out of business. <laughs> and so those never <laughs> after happened. After they accepted stories. After they accepted his stories. He killed two magazines, man. Uh, he had several years worth of rejection slips from other magazines And he thought, you know what, maybe I should just stop doing this. So he told his wife, he said, I'm going to do one last thing. I'm going to go to this Colorado Mountain College Writers Conference. And we'll see how that goes. And this is a guy in his early 30s. Yeah. Right. Who's been working. This is not a young, struggling person. This is a career young writer. And uh, he says, I'll go out there. If it doesn't work out, then we'll just consider this to be a hobby. And I will work harder on my teaching career. And he goes out there and he meets Harlan Ellison, of all people. And Harlan Ellison is like, uh, I really like your work. And if you stop writing, I will, quote, rip your nose off. Because that's how Harlan Ellison talked. Mm-hmm. 
and then he said, look, I'll enter one of your short stories in this contest that's being run by Twilight Zone magazine. It wins the contest. It's this short story called The River Sticks Runs Upstream. And that's published in 1982. And that basically gets the ball rolling for Simmons' career. Uh, he gets uh, another short story published in Omni. Then Song of Kali is published. And then on and then on. I, I believe this was the next thing that was published after that. So the problem is, is because he writes in all these different genres, publishers don't know what to do with him. He's not a brand you can sell. Yeah. And he's kind of fascinating to me because he's he's this incredible writer when you actually like sit down you look at what he's doing and like so much thought put into this work um but you don't hear a lot about him probably because marketing departments don't know what to do with it yeah he says i write across genres outside of genres and in between and he says that's why he's had multiple publishers in um so this would have been what at the sort of turn of the century 2000 ish um in, in his 20 years of writing he has had five publishers is what a feature says yeah simmons goes on to say publishers like to establish their writer on one slide and when i read that i think powerpoint slide like advertisement but that's not what he's saying he says no. then they want to grease that slide <laughs> it makes good business sense it just doesn't appeal to the creative side of a writer Mm -hmm. My current publisher, HarperCollins, has me under contract for four novels, two of them sci-fi and two difficult to categorize. They did, however, sensibly balk at my hard-boiled noir-as-hell homage to the Richard Stark, Donald Westlake novel Hard Case, so off I went in search of yet a new publisher. So yeah, he's written in all over yeah. the place. And, and Richard Stark is straight up heist. You know, yeah. it, all the Richard Stark novels with Parker in them are... Um, a betrayed robber kills and beats his way through um, the folks who betrayed him so he can get his money back. So we've got a guy who writes sci-fi, he writes horror, and he's writing crime novels as well. And there, it, it sounds, wait a minute, this sounds like Stephen King. Uh, <laughs> but the sales weren't there, I think, for the marketing departments to try to figure out how to sell this stuff. Well, also, he didn't have like a... Um, a set of five or six novels that like established the one genre. Like, yeah. We're going to sell you in this one. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess Simmons is not writing fast enough to have a trunk full of off genre novels waiting to be uh, tried out. I don't know. He, when I look at his bibliography, the dude's written a ton, but we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll find out. Um, this seemed to be the number one quote to me that seems to define his approach to this stuff. He says, I'm drawn to mo the most interesting tropes and protocols that are available to a writer regardless of genre boundaries. He brings up Gravity's Rainbow. He says, is that a sci-fi novel? How no. come Borges didn't go to more world fantasy conventions? Because he was blind. Is Macbeth dark fantasy because of the witches or Hamlet no. horror? So Charlie's <laughs> responding to all of these because he's responding to not liking the book. So in your mind, exactly. that means you don't like this man as a human being as no, well? No, no, no. I, I just, I mostly am responding to, um, these are sort of, uh, condescending questions about these narratives as opposed to actual discussions of what does the genre signify? I think his and point is fun. that there's stuff that's considered literary yeah. that has sci-fi horror or fantasy or crime elements blended into it. And nobody thinks twice about that. Yeah. And so is that the question we should be asking? 
It's not. It, it, we should be asking, like, what is the thing beyond elements that make people consider one form of writing less important? You know, this is the, the stealth topic, right, for so many of our episodes. Why is some uh, narrative, why are some books considered literary and some are considered trash or genre right. or pulp? Mm-hmm. He ends this big quote by saying, all sufficiently ambitious writers are cuckoos in the sense that they will lay their eggs in whatever nest offers the best chance for artistic survival. The absolute best writers transcend even the need for nests. That's a very interesting metaphor. Yeah, I don't know that I would have gone there with cuckoos and eggs, but I get what he's saying. And, you know, I got to wonder if he's got some ornithology um, book somewhere in his background because <laughs> you know the shrike is this incredibly important you know piece who knows of with this guy he's incredibly well researched <laughs> i mean the stuff that he squeezes into these is is remarkable um and he clearly does his homework ahead of time yeah um so to expand more on his sort of thinking about writing because Dan Simmons clearly, like when you read the interviews or even just people's sort of assessments of how he writes and, and what's in his books, this is a literary minded man, a, a, a man of letters, you know, putting his efforts to genres that are usually considered um, trashy. And and he's thinking about that. He's not doing it and saying, I don't give a shit. He's saying, I don't know why people care. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. here's him talking about Montaigne. Um a, a thinker who I only know, you know, by name and reputation. So Montaigne's essays include something in which Zeno's disciples are sorted into two groups. Uh, those he calls curious to learn things and those who care only for language. Okay. Wh- which one of those would you fall into? I I mean, this sounds like a a hedge, but I, I think that I am curious and that I like language. I don't exactly know why that's the the division. <laughs> and, and the reason I wonder why that's a division is because this is not about like a personality test. This mm-hmm. is about like what someone saw as um, like core human values. Yeah. But okay, let's, let's let Simmons have his, um, have his description. He says, Most current casual readers fall into the first category, curious to learn things. Readers of history, self-improvement, kiss-and-tell bios, most popular fiction. Even the best novels in the historical novel or realist tradition can be enjoyed primarily as a great feast of facts and social observations. On the other side of the coin reside the language dance novels of Nabokov and Pinchon. And I don't know how to say this man's name. Do you know? No idea. Undace? Uh, the guy who wrote The English Patient, and so many others, damned near devoid of plot and solid content. Ooh, harsh, but lovely to read, a joy to listen to. So it's interesting to me because though he, he just pointed out two books that you have gushed, gushed about on this podcast as being the second of those two things. Mm-hmm. And I would say those first two, the first category there is not for either you or me readers of history self-improvement kiss and tell bios and most popular fiction no thanks you know like <laughs> I, I think it's been pretty firmly established that neither of us are are into the, those kinds of books yeah but it, it is also interesting that he categorizes 
or you know that Montaigne does or Simmons does categorizes folks who enjoy the language dance, enjoy the sort of um, you know overly written the the, the artistically and maniacally written books as devoid of plot and solid content. Well, I don't I know think, why that's the category. Well, uh, have you read Pale Fire, Gravity's Rainbow? Oh, you have, because we did episodes on them. Yeah, and we <laughs> talked about it. And you remember, Slothrop has a very long adventure mm. with lots of things that happen to him. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> I think I think he, he's condensing here the same way that you're condensing. Uh, I guess the point would be, is it? I think he's arguing, why can't you do both? Yeah, so he, he then synthesizes both these categories in, in kind of a beautiful way. He says, I enjoy reading things rich in facts and clear observation that are still well-written and which offer a symphony of language. Obviously, I would prefer to write that way as well. So very much this guy says, I am setting out to be the best of both worlds. I want to be the incredibly well-written, gripping novel. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want to be that. He wants to write it. Uh, but he, he definitely wants to pull the strengths from both the kinds of books and slough off the weaknesses. Okay. He also says this, I really have no idea which powerful writers have influenced me in terms of style. So much of a professional writer's ambition is to create and maintain an interesting style of their own. In terms of ambition, I would like to emulate a writer such as John Falls, who mixes some popular success with serious intent, a command of plot, character, and form equal to any novelist of the century, and a willingness to take risks. And then he fin finally says this, which I, I like this quote a lot. He says, writers should write until they go face down on the keyboard. It is my agent's job to sell the last page. <laughs> you know, I've also read Daniel Martin, which is the book that he sort of holds up as his example. Uh -huh. And... I would not have ever made the connection without this push, but I can see how um, one could compare uh, Simmons writing to Foles writing because there is this kind of um, confident, omniscient, detached narrator voice. Okay. And Simmons then allows himself to play in the book by having several um, characters take on first person narration so he can really enjoy himself, do language dance while yeah. the, the narrator or the, um, the writer voice of the book is that very cool, you know, and thorough and observant mm -hmm. kind of godlike writer. Yeah, this is a good opportunity for us to break it down for the audience. So if you haven't read this book. This is no spoilers, but this is the structure for the book. Uh, it has the same structure as Canterbury Tales. There's an introduction, and then there are short stories or novellas that are all tied together, and then they thread together into the epilogue, and the book ends. Now, I have never read the Canterbury Tales, and I did not know that the way that they were attached was that all of these tales are people on a pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. Have you read it? No. Okay. No. So I'm going off of what I've been told. Yeah. But it's it's very interesting that then it's just like there's no um, there's no escaping that this is what he was trying to do. Yeah. You know, that there's mm -hmm. a, a pilgrimage and and people explaining why they are in these sort of self-contained, not exactly short stories, but self-contained narratives that are separate from 
the immediate pilgrimage narrative that we're reading in the mm-hmm. book. And so they're each separated by not their identity, but their jobs in life, what their roles are. So there's a tale from the priest. There's a tale from the soldier. There's the poet's tale, the scholar's tale, the detective's tale, and the consul's tale. And as Charlie alluded to, each of those characters, their sections are written in different ways. Some are in first person, some aren't. Some are written in like, I think one of them's in like a diary format or something like that. Like... There, and the, the style of language used within them is different as well. Like the detective's tale is written as a sci-fi, sci-fi kind of noirish thing, like a it's, mystery trying to be solved. It's very William Gibson-y, right? Yeah. And it's almost contemporaneous, right? Like Gibson was early 80s with Neuromancer. Mm-hmm. And then this is, you know, just after. So he's pulling on, you know, trends, mm-hmm. uh, maybe... Um, and, you know, bursts of popular styles, cyberpunk in this case. And then with the others, there's some that are just like straight up. Oh, I recognize this sort of science fiction um, dialect. Right. There's I think a- that's true. But I also think I recognized something in Simmons in this book that I found pretty remarkable. This guy has an incredible foresight for where storytelling is going or where it would go. Each of these stories exhibits uh, trends that you wouldn't see for 20, 30 years after this book came out. And the way in which he, I know other sci-fi writers were doing a similar thing, but the way in which he envisions things that are every day for us now, like the internet or uh, smartphones is so on point it feels like it was written yesterday and not in the 80s it's um and in particular <laughs> the thing that really he that he nailed like i was reading passages out loud to my wife <laughs> the section that is the the poet's tale um the way the poet talks about working with his publishers and what they want and how they distribute his work to the public was amazingly on point. Okay. So um, I, I, I just, I, I say that because I don't want us to get into this trap of like, oh, yeah, but Neuromancer came out, so he was just, you know, he did a chapter where he was copying Cyberpunk, gotcha, and gotcha. then he did another chapter where he was copying Star Trek. It, I don't think it was like that. I think, I wasn't saying that he was copying it so much as saying that he did not just say, oh, I'm going to, use Canterbury Tales as my structure and I'm going to pull on these old, mm-hmm. you know, forms. Like he was ready and willing to um, translate something that was happening at the time he was writing mm. into his book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the whole thing came from him being an elementary school teacher originally. And apparently he used to tell stories to his young students that were set in the Hyperion universe that is crazy, man. There's <laughs> nothing really kid friendly about how this universe came to be. And the you know, like the end result of Hyperion, this planet that's, you know, far away, detached from the world, you you know, you lose your life if you go there, and then there's a fucking knife creature. And again, a- another huge difference between <laughs> you and me. My first thought was, how cool would it have been to have had a teacher who told us stories like this. I didn't have teachers who told me any stories, much less their own stories. Charlie goes to, oh, the children. Oh, wow. That is exactly what I sounded like, too. Yeah. 
So he's telling these knife shrike Hellraiser stories to his kids, not his kids, other people's kids, Charlie's yeah, kids, other children. He's telling Hellraiser to the uh, eventually when he gets these publishing deals, he says, oh, I'm going to I'm going to use this universe. This is going to be like the backdrop for my my project. Right. Like after he has his first novel, he's now I'm going to do like a thing. Uh, and this is published in two volumes, but they couldn't publish it in two volumes because those two volumes were too long. So they split them into four volumes. So yeah, let's say that again. So Hyperion <clears throat> and the fall of Hyperion are the first two books of the series. And that's really one, one book. Novel. Yeah. And then, uh, Endiamon, I guess. am I saying that right? Sure. Endymion. Endymion and uh, something else. The Rise of Endymion. Endymion Is another novel. And he even points out, like, these are two stories that are distinctly different, spread out over two pairs of books. Yeah. So, uh, again, like, this gets back to, like, what we were talking about, about how uh, publishing divisions, right? Like, Gravity's Rainbow comes out in early 70s. And a publisher's like, yeah, sure, we'll put this monster out. Uh, but by the 80s, they were like, nah, no, no, we won't. Well, now let's think about that a little bit more, though. Like the Lord of the Rings trilogy is actually the book, The Lord of the Rings. And that was much earlier. And it got broken up for terms of length because That's of true. length, excuse me. Gravity's Rainbow, because it has that kind of ooh counterculture. Oh, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, special upcoming um, literary writer, it was given a certain amount of, uh, what do you call it, leeway that then Dan Simmons didn't get, I think, again, because of genre. I think yeah, it was like... I, that's exactly what I was going to say. It comes down to genre, right? So uh, the assumption is that literary readers are willing to square off against a thousand-page right. novel. And how could you break up a work of art? Right. We can definitely serialize this uh, fucking fantasy bullshit, mm-hmm. right? Is- right. Isn't that how they started? We'll just do it right. like they yeah, used to be. Yeah, we'll just put it on pulp paper. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. So, it's it's an interesting origin story for sure. He doesn't get a ton into his writing process. Like, there are some descriptions that I saw in the research that were just about like his workspace. Like, he has a carriage house that he he works in and that yeah. it's like it's clean apparently and very he, orderly. he is a very classical sounding writer like this is what all of the writers that i was reading when i was a kid would think of uh and when they were talking about what writers made them want to be mm. writers you know someone who goes and writes after doing a ton of research and you know we made some jokes about it but if he was telling these little stories these little universe you know, building stories to kids in school and having to deal with whatever those questions were, he has had already done a ton of like, uh, of quality assurance and investigatory kind of work <laughs> yeah. on his principles of this oh, world before oh, yeah. he got to this particular writing, um, project. Yeah. That's a good point. Like those kids would have probably, they're probably like the harshest possible critics you could get. They would be like, but wait a minute. Yeah. I mean, critics, but then also like, just if you're telling a story to a bunch of kids and you say the Shrike, no one's going to say, I I'm sure we'll find out more about the Shrike later, sir. You know, it's like, what's that? Why is that? Um, so he gets into talking more about what he what he what his eventual goal is with these books and what he wants people to get out of them. And he says, I think 
the readers who know that literature can enjoy pursuing references like Canterbury Tales or references like uh, apparently there's references to Huckleberry Finn in here. There are, uh, we mentioned John Keats already. He said, I think they, the readers can enjoy that, that it will deepen their experience, but it's not necessary. It's not a game of finding the literary references. And I, I tend to agree. Like I read through this book and I was like, I don't know that this is Canterbury Tales. Uh, and, right. Well, and, I and, thought uh, of a uh, league of extraordinary gentlemen. Oh, interesting. That's just been on my mind recently. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I haven't read some of the works that are referenced in Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill's. Oh, God. No one has. No yeah. one's read all of them. No one's read all Not of them. Not even more, I don't think. But that doesn't take away from my enjoyment of the story. You know, mm-hmm. it might um, make it a little more shallow. Or, you know, a little more surface, my enjoyment of it. If I'd never heard of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, then I would have just been like, holy shit, what's this ape guy, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it, it wouldn't take away from the things that happen to the people in it. And this universe of Hyperion is so built that if you don't yeah. know that this this uh, reference just sort of, this is where it came from in literature, this little bit, it's not going to change the huge backdrop of this intensely thought out universe with, you know, uh, I, I, it's hard to, this is, this is where I fall into my sort of, Oh, it's, it's, uh, admirably soporific or soporifically admirable because I am, I'm having a hard time coming up, coming up with examples. Cause I remember the experience of being like, Oh wow. You know, this is really well thought out, you know, all these connections in this kind of deep history. Yeah. But I haven't retained much of it at all. Oh yeah. Okay. I don't know that I retained it, but while I was in the book, I finished it earlier than you too. I finished it about a month ago. And so it's, it's like a memory for me now rather than like being right in it. Um, but I just remember as I was reading it, feeling like not only did he nail the world building, Although I do agree, it was a little bit much. Like so, there were some times where I was like, I don't, I don't need to know the descriptions of these ships anymore, or these, you know, uh, the flora and fauna on each planet. This is the the food on the table and the flag on the horse. <laughs> yeah, um, but the way in which he was insightful about the present day while writing multiple short stories in different styles and different genres with different characters and then pulled it all together was very impressive to me. Yeah. Despite not being completely convinced by it, I could recognize that when I got to the ending, which was, you know, bizarrely called the epilogue, mm. right? It's like, even though it's like the connective tissue to the next yeah, book. You know, yeah. yeah. Um, that it was like, um, it was like hearing the end of a, of a symphony. Right? Like mm-hmm. we're finishing how all of these um, stories, all of these themes, motifs have um, have mixed together. Yeah, I like that metaphor, Charlie. I, I am struggling with this with my own writing right now in that I try to strive. I don't I wouldn't say for a symphony level in my writing, <laughs> but I try to have layers. I try to have depth to my writing in that it's not just plot or it's not just characters that I'm and I sent out a newsletter 
two months ago where I was basically bitching and moaning about this, that like nobody in in present day culture knows how to discuss storytelling because none of us are using the same terminology to talk about what we like or don't like right, within right. the story structure. Um, and one of the things I left out of that newsletter is I find in a lot of modern both novels and comics that I read, most writers are not going for multi-layered things. They're just trying to get the thing out there. They, it's it's a it's a TV show that is you know it's going to be written and shot in a week and put out on the next Monday. You know, that's what they're going for. And so I'm often disappointed when I pick something up and I'm like, oh cool, oh this is just I can only think of it in terms of depth one is flat and one has like volume to it. Um, and when I read this book, I, I was like you, I was like, eh, there's some stuff about the story and about the style that I don't particularly like, but the fact that he actually tried to have this much depth to the story means more to me. Yeah. And let's go, let's go back to Simmons. He's answering in this big quote I'm about to read. He's answering a question kind of like, do you think science fiction tells us what's going to happen? And he says, no, I don't believe in prophecy. They're a story, a development of ideas. I'm very interested in the evolution of technology. And it's really the idea of artificial life, which intrigues me more than just intelligence, a new evolving life form arising within our data sphere and coming into living relation with humanity. This is where Keats theme resonates. Okay. So that's just the beginning part of this big chunk, but He's talking about being concerned with big ideas separate from the work and allowing that big idea to sort of suck up both references to work that he's already experienced and um, giving him a reason to write his story. Yeah, I think when you go into it with those ideas as like anchor points, it makes the work richer. Yeah. And he says... Uh, as for the depiction of the Catholic Church, now, I am not a Catholic, Chris, nor have I ever been um, interested in being a Catholic. Uh, I don't have the history or the tools to really understand what he was bringing religion-wise into this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it was also very clear that there was a streak of investigating religion mm -hmm. in the story. Mm-hmm. So he says, it's not meant to be a prediction about the church. It's really about whatever happens whenever religion and power go hand in hand. I'm not anti-church by any means. What interests me is that human beings are almost always corrupted by the control they wield over other human beings. That situation has been especially tragic for religions. Now, this is an interesting moment for me because I remember being broken early on in like my, uh, my quest to learn what being a novelist is like being broken of the idea that you're going to set out to tell a moral about the world, that you're going to try and show how things happen. Yeah. You know, no, there's definitely story, like two sides to, to this argument. Yeah. And the, the folks who are on one side very strongly are like, no, if you do that, if you set out to do that, it's going to be didactic and no one's going yeah. to want to read it. Whereas the other side is like, well, if you try to do this, it'll be a little bit more richer than this pap that you guys are writing. And that's Dan Simmons. The latter is Dan Simmons' mm -hmm. um, sort of take on it. He he is straight up saying, I'm interested in looking at how power corrupts, especially in religions. And it's there's a little bit of, 
oh, are you going to show us that in your work? But the thing is that he did because he spent enough time imagining a history, right? 700 years of history from, from our present. I wonder how much John Gardner would hate this book. Oh, he would hate it all the way. Yeah. He but would it's hate kind it of interesting, right? Out. Because this is a book that is struggling with the idea of morality and ethics and storytelling. Yeah. And I don't think that Gardner would say this is an immoral book because it presents immoral things. I think uh-huh. he would say this is written all wrong. Right. Yeah. For Gardner, it was more about style, even though his argument was all about morality. <laughs> He couldn't get past how the sentence was structured. He wanted a profluent plot and not a lot of fucking around. So all of this shows up on the doorstep of a publisher named Doubleday. And I'm willing to guess that the people at Doubleday weren't thinking that far as far as John Gardner were (laughs) would have about about the the themes and the, the style of this book. But they liked it. They thought that it would sell well, and they agreed to to put it out. Now, Um, anecdotally, Chris, mm. I can say 1989 was definitely a time when this kind of book sold, because I was a, what, junior in high school, sophomore in high school, and this was, these books were all over the place. These mass market paperbacks with a really, like, ornate, painted, you know, um, depiction of several different things from the book all at once. You well, let, let's hold on. Let's make a difference here. The 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 trade, the actual physical product was everywhere. I wouldn't say you're I think you're conflating Dan Simmons with a lot of these other sci fi fantasy writers I that totally I don't am. Yeah. I don't know necessarily that he has as much in common with like, well, I'm thinking of double day imagining. Oh, oh, hey, look, here's another one of those. OK. Right. OK. Because because, again, they're not trying to sell Dan Simmons. Mm-hmm. Right. Like this big fat book lands at double day. And uh, I'm going to get probably the the time frame wrong, but some version of, oh, holy shit, you know, the Wheel of Time has really been kicking ass. Let's see mm-hmm. if we get in on, on this kind of series again. Wheel of Time's fantasy, though, right? Yeah. Okay. But so is this kind of. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I guess it depends on whether you're a writer or a librarian, you know, based on yep. the assessment at the beginning of the episode. Or, or a reader. Yeah, or a reader. Um, so Doubleday is a company that's been around for a long time. Uh, they started in 1897. There was a point, Charlie, in which Doubleday was the largest publisher in the United States. That was not the point when they published this book, um, <laughs> but they were still pretty damn big. They, again, in our endless tour of companies buying other companies to form the big five, they're they're in on it. So... Doubleday in 2009 was merged with Knopf and is owned by Penguin Random House. So now it's referred to as Knopf Doubleday. This it's an imprint, like, not a publisher. Yeah. This feels like when you find out that sunglasses are all made by the same company, <laughs> you know, and they just yeah. have different brand names on them, mm-hmm. but they all come from the same factory. Uh, when this book was published, Doubleday had just become merged with other companies uh at the time they were merged with bantam and dell and though that merging publishing group was bought by random house and then random house (laughs) merged doubleday together with broadway anchor and vintage and that was all under knopf 
And it's only later in 2006 that Knopf and Doubleday merged together. So you've got all these, they're smashing <laughs> these companies together and then pulling them apart like taffy. And I think this speaks to what you were just saying. Your perspective in the market was like going into a B Dalton in the mall probably. Oh yeah, and, totally. And seeing this shelf full of like, painted books with embossed covers they're all about the same size they're all like 695 or something like that and you know if you pick it up you're going to get some combination of sci-fi or fantasy yeah. um and i think maybe we're seeing a little bit of that here in that these different publishing groups were it, it's like there was no rhyme or reason there was no mission to any one thing because even if doubleday had a mission of like a specific type of book they wanted to publish one year they were smashed together with another publisher. Then the next year, three quarters of that was pulled apart and then smashed yeah. together with another publisher. It just didn't make any sense. So everybody was just kind of going for the wall of books that they knew sold. I feel like editors at these publishing houses were a little bit like morning radio DJs at the same time where, you know, if you got fired or let go, you just mm -hmm. go to the next market and see mm -hmm. who's there and you bring with uh, you bring with that transition your personality, but also then uh, some of the market you left and then the market that you arrive in sort of changes yeah. you. It's like, hey, we really love you, but you're going to have to stop saying wicked because that's a very Boston-y thing. And this is <laughs> Iowa. <You know? laughs> it's all kind of fascinating, right? Like when you, when you think about it, like Simmons was basically told like, oh, we can't possibly imagine publishing both a horror novel and a crime novel and a science fiction novel by the same person. But in the meantime, like the businesses that own these companies are like mixing and matching everything. There's no actual like thought put into it other than what will garnish the most money. Oh, right. So it's actually, look, man, there's so much going on back here. I can't keep it straight. I don't even know who I work for anymore. Yeah. Please just write the same book. They again. probably don't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now that we've completely torn a new asshole into the publishing industry of the 1980s. Oh, yeah. Let's take a break. In fear. Mm -hmm. Chris, these Patreon spots seem more and more surreal to me as we head toward the end of our super context run. Yeah. Are you, are you on the countdown of like, there's only, uh, you know, five more Patreon spots to read and therefore 500 names to be read. <laughs> no, I love reading the names. I just, I'm feeling less and less like I have to take it seriously. You uh, know, if yeah. I get it, I don't have to convince people to join our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash super context. Right. Yeah. Um, we, uh, don't need to say, Hey, you help us pay our hosting fees, cover expenses, maintain the recording setup. It's like when we're done here, We'd love for you to give us a small amount of money so we can keep the podcast up. And if you do <laughs> yeah. that, you can have whatever. Like that's the really pitch. that's what it is at this point. Yeah. I mean, uh, we have a Patreon that's running right now. Uh, it will run for another couple weeks after this airs. And then on May 1st of 2020, we are switching it. So all patrons go to a one dollar a month tier if they want to continue to support the show. That will solely be to keep the public RSS feed up and active and free so that other people can continue to discover the show. Now, you will still get a reward, and the reward will be a mini-sode every month where Charlie and I pop on and we talk to each other pretty casually, like most podcasts about pop culture, about like what we're watching and reading and consuming. And I think a big part of that, Chris, is just that I feel 
like many, if not all, of our Patreon supporters are friends of mine in some way now. <laughs> like, I know their name. I, I know personal details about a number of these folks because we've been connected on yeah. Patreon or Twitter. I, I want to continue talking to you in this semi-formal way, and I want to continue checking in with them and have them check in with us. Yeah, me too. I would really love to continue to get feedback from folks. And, uh, you know, if they listen to those many episodes that we produce once a month, that would be great. And we'd love to hear from them on, on, you know, what we talk about in those episodes as well. It's just, we, you know, as we've mentioned, we don't have the time or resources to continue producing this show on a weekly basis. Sorry, everybody. Coronavirus or not, we still just can't do it. (laughs) (laughs) It is incredibly validating and very kind when people say, I wish you all would continue. I wish you'd keep doing it. Can't you just do this much? Can't you just do that much? And I appreciate it. Um, Who are we talking about, Chris, when we keep saying Patreon supporters? We're talking about the following people, starting with our new patron, H.A. Eugene. H.A., thank you for joining us right here at the end. And thank you also to Alex Laird. Alice Florence, Ambrose Allen, Amit Doshi, Andy Riggs, B.B. Schwells, Bennett Callahan, Beth Barnett, Beth Gilmore, Billy Whitehouse, Bing Bong Man, Brandon Daniels, Brian Chovenich, Caroline Zoids, Chris Marlton, who is the co-producer for this episode, and Cliff Landis. And thank you, Coco, and Dave Jordan, Dave Wachter, Elijah Tilstra, Evan Mapstone, Fred Rasco, Ira James Udiskin. James McDonnell, Jason, another nickname, Puckett, Jim Taylor, Jess Staten, John Klima, John Pheasant, Joseph Aleo, Juan Patton, Junta Slash Cult, and Calvin Ellis for being a Patreon supporter. Thank you to Carmela Padovich, Kate Sharon, Kevin Wetter, Christian Hirvola, Lee Fowler, Lokesh Dakar, Luciano Fuck, Luigi Oswego, Melinda Hale, Miriam Meany, Misha Moon, Nathan Weatherford, Nick Sage, and Patrick Malka. And thank you, Pete Bowe, Philip, R.M. Rhodes, the podcast, Rain It In, Matt and Rachel, Roar Vinland, Rob Sloan, Robert Negoesco, Roman Marichik, Romantic Placebo, Ron Billado, Ross Llewellyn, Ryan O'Neill, Sari Nichols, Seth Friedman, Simon Workman, Thomas Tremberger, Veal Height, and Whitney Buchanan for your support and for staying connected. And hey, if you also want to throw a buck at us a month to help keep this show public and free, for everybody, go ahead and visit us at patreon.com slash supercontext. And we're back. Chris, this was a book that a lot of people liked, as we've said, but we have proof from the industry and the fans. Yeah, and I think uh, we don't have numbers, but I think what we're looking at here from the industry is specifically the sci-fi industry, right? So it won the Hugo Award for the 1990 Best Novel. It won the Locust Award for Best Novel in 1990. And then it was nominated for the BSFA for Best Novel in 1991. The entire series is one of the most highly award-winning series in all of science fiction across all four books They've earned him three Hugo nominations and one win, two Locus Awards, and a Nebula nomination. So sci-fi readers and creators and industry professionals love it. I don't know that that necessarily translates to people love it. Yeah, I mean, if if more people loved it, I think that these sort of aborted uh, film projects would have made it, right? 
Maybe. Um, and I mean, it's worth noting that what the terror only just got made like two or three years ago. And the second season of the terror is like a completely original story. They just kept the title. It's not, uh, based on his novel anymore. They like wrote a completely new story that doesn't even have any of the same characters or anything. It's like an anthology show now. Yeah. Well, the people who read Hyperion in high school are just now getting to the kind of, um, position of authority in media companies that they can swing stuff like this like what hey let's what, really what? Well, what? what are you talking about position of authority in media companies i i don't actually understand what sarcasm you're bringing so i'd like you to explain it what did i just step in i told you my boss is yes, one of the people yes, who's yes. working on the options for this gotcha okay so yeah, that was that my was former f- boss sorry surprise. not my current boss right, i'm not right. gonna fuck this I'm not going to dilly-dally around this. Connell Byrne used to be my boss at at How Stuff Works. He is now, I don't know, vice president of something at iHeartMedia. And he and Bradley Cooper are childhood friends and are supposedly working on this together. But this was back in 2011 that it was first announced that they were kind of interested. Yeah, and- I heard about it probably in like 2013 or 2014. Yeah. Um, so actually, let's talk about this real quick. In 2009... There was a project that was set up. Uh, Scott Derrickson was going to direct a um, first two books smushed into one movie <laughs> movie called The Hyperion Cantos. Uh, and that was for Warner Brothers. Okay. It did not happen. In 2011, there was a public uh, discussion of Bradley Cooper's interest and your ex-boss's interest in um, His name is never in the articles, Connell's yeah, but, name. But we know he was in there. Um, Supposedly. And then uh, 2015, Sci-Fi said they were going to do the miniseries and yeah. we're bringing along Bradley Cooper. But uh, let's see. Oh, as of May 2017, the project is still in development at Sci-Fi. And that was three years ago. Um, I, I think the idea here, though, is that Bradley Cooper wants to write. I don't know that he necessarily wants to star in this. And then after... I mean, most recently, he's known for A Star is Born, which he didn't he write and direct that as well as star in it. So maybe that was like the proving ground. So I actually have no I I have no data. It's just a theory. But I do think that there's waves of people who establish themselves and become um, influential at certain ages that are taken seriously. You know, just sort of the, the kind of expected flow of someone's career. And they bring with them stuff that was really important to them in high school, you know, mm-hmm, that didn't mm-hmm. get a lot of play in the mainstream, but then suddenly these folks bring it up. They're like, well, there's a book I want to work on. And it's like, where did this come from? It's like, well, I read it in high school. It was really important to me, but I also have to admit, like, I have no fucking idea. That's just one of those sort of theories that I have about how stuff works that I don't, you know, know anything about the inner workings. The idea I have of a production meeting is probably nothing like an actual production meeting. This is actually a really interesting point for you to bring up, and it's not necessarily about Hyperion, but we've been doing a show that is ostensibly about understanding media better for four years now, and I don't think you're wrong. Like, there is so much um, false mysticism around specifically uh, Hollywood television and film production more than like writing books necessarily. Yeah. But you're right. Like even after all the research, all the hours that we've done on this show, 
the the idea of the quote production meeting seems like a, a dream to you. Yeah, the the things that happen to make certain productions begin have been um, referred to, rendered, and uh, translated mm-hmm. in both like journalism and fiction so much that I have no actual referent to think of. Mm-hmm. I have just a sort of a, an amalgamation that I have created in order to encompass all the things that seem right to me in both the, uh, the journalism and the fiction, especially when the journalism is actually like podcasts and people saying, Oh yeah, I love the writer's room that we're in right now, you know? And then I'm like, okay, so this person who is clearly making sure that everyone knows that they love working with their team is describing how that stuff works or people making sure that Sony doesn't kill their next project, even though they had trouble getting this one on. I think what I would say there is, is that just goes to show how ill-informed we are about how media is made in our culture. Right. It, Cause like you're a person who in a sense should be, I don't know, not an expert, but like a, uh, what would the word be for it? Like you're self-trained. I have tried really hard to understand this stuff. And I recognize, you know, as we slide into the end here, right? Like, okay, what have you accomplished? It's like, well, I've made up a lot of stuff in my head is what I've accomplished. (laughs) Now all you know is that you've made the stuff up. You don't know what the actual answers are. And so my point is that, like, the people who, you know, the majority of people, 98, 99% of the people who consume this media have even more fantastic ideas in their heads of how these things are made, right? I always go back to our intro says just a little bit better, Chris. Right, right. And we have accomplished that. So let's segue into talking about how Dan Simmons represents humanity and all of its diverse facets. You know, it's funny, like that does sound like a a super sarcastic moment, but he does a good job, I think. Yeah, you have it here. You list it, I think, perfectly. Um, each of the pilgrims in this book are a different class. Yeah. All right. So there's very different viewpoints, different um, ideologies pre- present, and they do seem different. Like he has a good control of his voice so that the mm-hmm. characters can have different voices. He explores diverse genders, ages, religions, and science fiction ethnicities. Yeah, there's n- there's not a lot of like... You know, this person is African in origin. This person is Asian in origin. There's none of that because it's 700 years in the future. But he does uh, imagine differences and acknowledge them. Based on like the new pretend planets they're from. But then he does not talk about sexuality very much. Not he doesn't talk about diverse sexuality. There is occasionally like heterosexuality in here, but he. Even when that shows up, it's it's almost done for sci-fi kink purposes, right? Like I'm thinking about the the detective chapter well, yeah, and how I mean, she falls in love, love desire, with an artificial certainly. intelligence. Yeah. yeah, but it's not it's not an exploration of sexuality and no. it's it's potential diversity. And also, as we will get to in a little while, um, there's a certain like uh, unacknowledged colonial recapitulation in the mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I thought as I was reading it, and I didn't see this in the research for today, so maybe I'm wrong, is that he was purposely segmenting the chapters into units of society that are in positions of authority. 
So you've got the church, you've got the military, you've got the literary industrial complex, yeah. you've got uh, education, higher education, and then you've got the detective is the one where it kind of falls apart because the detective is, I guess, police in a way. Well, I think it's technology there, actually. I think the more oh. important piece to look at is how AI is applied and, yeah. and, and how it's treated. And then um, the console is the government. Yeah. So there's not, there's not work to refer to about this stuff, but it is a, is a, it's a right down the middle of the road kind of, um, you know, well done on your acknowledgement and, and observation of a, a varied human experience. But there's these, particular gaps that seem very glaring looking back from, you know, 40 years, uh, 30 years forward. You know what? I'm going to, I'm going to pat him on the back though, because for 1984 or whenever it was that he was writing this, like not only is the like futurism remarkably prescient, but he's thinking about identity and diversity and people and his characters in a way that not a lot of other people were. He's a very thoughtful creator. Yeah. Okay. God, this is, there's so much going on here. Like, and by going on here, what I mean is the content analysis of Hyperion would take several podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. And would take the kind of research that, um, that Simmons did, I think, you know, like, how can you talk about how someone critiques the Catholic church in a, um, uh, sort of a dreamlike way, you know, by yeah. not, when you yeah. don't understand what they're referring to when they create the science fiction version. So what, what we're going to do here to, you know, uh, finish off our, our fifth component identity and themes, we're going to ask other people to explain to us what they saw and what their like hobby horses were, what yeah. they got caught on when they were reading Hyperion. And we'll try to skim through this and not get too caught in the weeds, but I, I do want to um, just give you some titles of some of the academic papers that we're citing here to give you an idea of oh, like, this is good. Yeah, this is all over the place. Like there's one called authoring the sacred humanism and invented scripture in Dan Simmons Hyperion evolution and neuroethics in the Hyperion cantos. Uh, there's one called eschatology and pain in Dan Simmons Hyperion. Dan Simmons Hyperion Cantos, The Fantasy Within. That's in the Hungarian Journal of English. <laughs> Which means, I think, that it's written by Hungarians reading works of English and then writing academically about them. Yeah, the Hungarian Journal of English Literature. Okay. So, it's a, there's a lot. And honestly, I barely scratched the surface, Charlie. Like, there was a point where I was like, oh my god, this well just keeps going further and further down. But I think there's a lot here to talk about. And it's important to acknowledge that the book is so rich that it is capable of taking on um, or being taken on by multiple academic frameworks. Yeah. Yeah. So let's start off with the, the one guy who agrees with you, Tom Chick. <laughs> He's the one who says there's a problem with Hyperion that nobody's talking about. And his problem with Hyperion is the same problem that Charlie has, which is how stylistically it's written and it the kinds hilarious. of words that yeah, are chosen. It, it is hilarious though, that this is like, I'm just a guy on a podcast talking to his co-host. Mm. Tom chick wrote a, no uh, wrote a novel, wrote a article called, this is what's wrong with this book. 
and it's just a pet peeve. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very well written, though. Uh, Chick argues that, again, like, that there's all these words in here that uh, make it not only confusing as a reader, but just don't quite feel right when you're reading it 40 years later. And this uh, becomes important because of Simmons' concern with language mm-hmm. and, and how obviously language is important to him and, um, and is uh, done with care. So then yeah. these moments, like when Chick says a space word arrives, seems kind of glaring. Um, Chick says, uh, Simmons does that usual trick of establishing science fiction by tickling your brain with made-up space words, often juxtaposed with real words. This trick doesn't always work, because not all writers are good at coming up with space words. That's mostly not an issue for Simmons, even though some of his fundamentals sound a bit clumsy at first. So the problem with Hyperion is that he's not quite great at (laughs) making up words. Well, yeah, this one specific thing. Um, He does say, though, that some of the words that he complains about are exceptions to the rule. He said, normally, uh, the language here is used frequently and with enough conviction that they stop sounding weird after 100 pages or, or so. They're also interspersed with much better sounding space words that are casually <laughs> tossed around, but no less intriguing for it. Um, he does. He gets. Uh, I really like this complaint because of how it's worded. Um, so Dan Simmons suggests the Internet, like right at the moment that it was really coming into a, uh, a consumer uh, capable kind of. Um, communication system in America, but then he projects it forward 700 years uh, into a real-time network um, that has uh, what it feeds information to tens of billions of data-hungry citizens and has evolved a form of autonomy and consciousness all its own, not on servers but separate, you know, using AI in multiple places. So it's the internet. Mm-hmm. And then Chick says, "What name does Simmons have for this? The All Thing." I mean, sure, it works, Chick says. I get it. But it sounds like a Bowie lyric instead of the developed idea it actually is. It's one of a handful of Simmons made-up words that snags my eye on the way to my brain. World Web is another one. It's a casualty of timing because Hyperion was published the same year the World Wide Web was given its name. But don't you think that both you and Chick have the advantage of, of sneering at these words decades after he knew what the actual things would be they're funny in retrospect because i'm not sneering at those words oh it's more like i i'm not going to get any of these right so i'm going to have to go into the book okay so under duress i cannot come up with a great example but here is a sentence from second or third page A force space task force was immediately dispatched from Parvati to evacuate the hegemony citizens on Hyperion before the time tombs open. Their time debt will be a little more than three Hyperion years. When I first encounter that, Mm. there's a bit of a feeling of like, okay, Jesus, you know, Mm. Mm -hmm. and part of it comes from things like um, force space, right? Which to me just sounds like something that you would find in slang mm-hmm. a more easily said, a less um, uh, uh, elocution-heavy phrase. 
Do you know I get I mean? you, but what I'm thinking is that after I finished the book, I know exactly what that sentence means now in a way that I didn't when I was on that page of the book. There and is it's, that, yes. In a lot of ways, operates the same way something like, say, Gravity's Rainbow or Pale Fire would operate in that by the time you've finished the whole project, it offers new insights into the, the beginning of the project. Um, yeah. I don't know if that was Simmons' intention or not. He just drops you in. He doesn't take time to hold your hand and explain to you what all of these things mean. And that's what's frustrating, I think. And yeah, the names aren't great, but are they ever in start in science fiction? No, no. And it's funny, like my offhand comment, you know, sort of to have fun and sort of like just a feeling I have is given this weird weight because someone wrote a fucking article about it. Right. You have you a know? friend out there. Yeah, because Hyperion is that compelling and that important to enough people mm -hmm. that this this particular like this nervous tick of Simmons caught this guy's eye enough yeah. to write. Here's the problem. Here's the one problem. Here's the thing I don't like about this this amazing book. Um, he goes on to say Simmons objectively recreates the white European version of history as the discovery and exploration of a world that's been populated by dumb savages. Okay, hard They're, right turn, dude. What yeah. just happened? Yeah, so now he, he's jumped from style to talking about theme here. And he says, the, it, they, he's talking about the, the uh, people who populate the planet Hyperion, are depicted as stupid, violent, incurious, and superstitious. Hyperion, the book, demonstrates all these things to be true and not value judgments. So there is like some interesting idea. You mentioned this earlier, like how he approaches colonialism. So this is actually There's somewhat of a like white savior thing going yeah. on, even though the, the actual characters aren't white in this. So Tom Chick is is tricking us with his first uh, thing that's wrong with Hyperion. He's like, hey, there's a stylistic thing that's a problem. And then suddenly he's like, and then here is a failure of understanding or here is a uncomfortable um, way of relating a particular uh, historical tragedy. Yeah. He goes on. He says, I understand the enormity of colonialism. I have the utmost respect for first nations. And I find the approach here in Dan Simmons book fascinating. It teaches me a lot to hear stories that explain unfamiliar perspectives in subversive ways. There's a tendency to romanticize primitive cultures. It's often at the expense of actually understanding those cultures. There's also a tendency to demonize Europeans, and it's often at the expense of understanding why native populations were wiped out. So he's basically saying, like, Simmons is, is bringing to this what I am looking for from a book about uh, the diversity of perspectives about the issue of colonialism because he's making it complex. It's not a 2D thing. It's not, I don't know, Last of the Mohicans. Yeah. And and what a weird juxtaposition to then say some of the poetry of the prescient understandings of technology um, threw me off. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a rhetorical trick that I don't quite get, but I imagine it's done some kind of number on me. Well, let's skip to the next article then, which is by Brendan Shea. And this is the article I had a hard time understanding. This seems like something that you would probably help consult at tech as being a, <laughs> a, a paper somebody's writing. Uh, Shea says, I use sci-fi scenarios in Dan Simmons' Hyperion books to explore a cluster of issues 
related to the evolutionary history and neural bases of human moral cognition and the moral desirability of improving our ability to make moral decisions by techniques of neuroengineering. Uh, so let's use some more from the article to try and expand on that. Sure. Um, the author says, I'll be exploring the extent to which human moral norms are the product of our unique evolutionary heritage and to what extent we could reasonably expect intelligent beings with different evolutionary pasts to share them. So let's stop for a second there. I think what he's doing is making the comparison between the human beings that are originally from earth slash Terra and the indigenous peoples of Hyperion? I mean, I have to assume so, because that's like, uh, well, from any planet, right, that people, that uh, sentient yeah. um, identities arose are going to have a different evolutionary past. Um, this is weirdly like some kind of 17th century religious philosophy, well, right. I think I don't think what uh, this writer is doing is necessarily like, uh, you know, invaluable. It's just that it's it's so outside of our uh, understanding. He's trying to apply the models of neuroscience and morality that are being argued about today to a 1980s sci-fi book that he likes. Yeah. And then there's transhumanism philosophy. Like, yeah. uh, you know, the right. potential for so-called moral enhancement through technological means and the article argues that such actions would be permissible and desirable. So, I mean, that's a heavy fucking load. To yeah, put there's on a lot. And honestly, novel. that's all I put in from that article because it was just, it was real dense. And I felt like it would just really bring this podcast to a screeching halt if we got too much more into it. But then uh, to put up against that, like a, a discussion of the book on um, the Barnes and Noble sort of review publication by mm -hmm. John Bardinelli, who straight up says that, you know, the emotional struggles of the characters are so integral to the plot. The two become inseparable. Mankind's quest for survival is mirrored dozens of different ways in the drama from our desire to protect our children to the pursuit of love, adventure and art or simple or the simple fight to stay alive. Um, it is like, as uh, direct a human story as one could imagine, mm. even amidst mm. the time monster and space travel. So like it doesn't uh, only appeal to academics or to people who are trying to dig deep and find the thing like yeah. it's, yeah. it's popularly um, uh, enjoyable. Joe Walton at tour.com in their review uh, talks about the Canterbury Tales structure to the story again and breaks down why they think that's important. And they say Hyperion expects that you're going to be able to fit everything together, that you're going to get all the science fiction references, you're going to put all the future histories together on the fly, and that you're also going to know what Hrothgar's Mead Hall was. I think it would be a terrible book if you were someone new to science fiction because it expects you to be able to do all the tricks of reading a text as science fiction, but then it also expects wider reference than just science fiction. I think right there, they nailed why you don't like it. Maybe, but do you think that this is an argument against what Bardinelli just said? That, you know, it's the emotional struggles are clear enough and human enough that everyone can be invested? Or do you think no. that this is like a complementary sort of discussion of the book 
So I'm going to try not to, to harp on my thing again about narrative and elements, but I will just say that I think we're talking about different elements to the story here. Bardinelli is talking about character and plot. Walton is talking about style. He is, but in particular, he's saying that it expects you to be able to do all the tricks of reading a text as science fiction, yeah. but a wide reference. Like there is a, 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 a sort of implied like loss if you don't have those skills. The idea is that, yeah, if so Walton is saying you're going to miss out on the stuff that Bardinelli is talking about if you don't have the right. stylistic skills. But going Simmons into this. himself and Bardinelli both say that's wrong, I mm. think. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's why I'm right. saying, like, yeah. does, does this feel complimentary or does it feel like a no, 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 you have to know how to read it. I think they're like, argument. all these people are doing what, what most academics do when they're, when they're analyzing a text <laughs> and they're zooming in really tight on one specific thing. And when you pull them all out, they could all be part of a larger argument together. Yeah. And, and if there's anything to the sort of the super context part of this, it's that this book has multiple, it creates multiple reactions mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and people imagine the reading experience to have different requirements. James H. Thrall goes on to say that uh, the whole thing, this is another part of the book that I sort of forgot. The whole thing is actually supposed to be one big poem that's written by the character that's called the poet. Uh, and he is a misanthropic poet that relates to sacred history of events that lead to the inhabited worlds, humanity itself, in a critical juncture. In these works, questions of source, artistry, and the function and effects of language themselves mingle as readers ponder what is sacred about the sacred text. So it's like they're saying there's like a metatextual thing going on here. I, I think I might have misunderstood you. The novel itself is not the poem, right? But that the Hyperion Cantos, which is also the name of the series, yeah. is the name of a poem inside the world of the series. Exactly. Okay, but yeah. then the idea could also be that you are later reading a revision. I haven't read the other books, Charlie, so yeah, I don't yeah. fucking know. But like the poet is basically like at one point, hey, so I started writing this thing. It's the most important thing I've ever written. And whoopsie, by accident, me writing this kind of brought this weird hellraiser deity to life and right. everything that i imagined is now coming true and on top of that then the writer calls uh, the, the, dan simmons calls his set of books by the same name as yeah. the poem that he references which yeah. is totally like it, it, it can't be uh just a casual like throwaway naming Right. It has to have some significance looking I would at imagine. the rest of the books, especially with relation to Keats, I think. But like my knowledge of Keats really is only what I learned from it in this novel. I'm not particularly well versed in uh, Keats or honestly, most poetry. Right. It's funny. So here's this book that references all of these um, poets, I think romantic poets. Uh, I probably got that wrong. And then Chaucer, like like medieval mm -hmm. um, literature, um, but at the end, the the cultural reference that takes us to the end of the book is a kind of cheeky slow reveal that they're all singing. We're off to see the wizard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, someone, but it ends with a pop culture re reference that's relevant to the time that it's written in. Yeah, someone mm -hmm. remembers seven hundred years <laughs> after. 
They all yeah. remember it. They all know the lyrics. Right. It's like kind this, of fascinating. This, this song has made its way through history. It, it's yeah. as um, as memorable as some... Uh, actually, there is nothing I can think of that's 700 years old that we all have a cultural memory of. I'm sure there's got to be something. Pro- well, probably like, a, I don't know, the Lord's Prayer. Huh. Oh, maybe. Well, now that's... That's a, a a mind job right there. Like, hey, Wizard of Oz is going to have the place of uh, biblical texts. <laughs> could it could? Um, so yeah, so they go on to talk about the model being based after Canterbury Tales. We've we've really gone into this a lot. I think that that's admirable, but I don't know that that's necessarily diving too deep into the themes and why this book is important to people. It's just the structure that he hangs the book on. Yeah, I mean the the book itself is explicitly like in the headings of the text referencing a very old text. And then that's like uh, the thing that then gets you in the place where you're going to start noticing, Oh, this sounds like Romeo and Juliet. Oh, this is, uh, you know, references from Keats. This seems like a a thing that I read about in my English class. And it's like the literary equivalent of family guy. Holy shit. I wonder if it is actually. I mean, Family Guy is just like, as soon as you have a chance for a reference, throw it in, right? That's been my experience watching it, yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like Simmons did that? No. Okay. <laughs> that, was, that was a joke, not at Simmons' expense, at Family Guy's expense. I am a man, Chris, sitting before you, who has never seen an episode of The Family Guy. Really? You've really? never seen any of those shows that he's created? Like any of the, what's that guy's name? any of his cartoons Todd McFarlane. it's <laughs> Seth McFarlane that guy yeah uh let's see so Family Guy and American Dad right and then the new one's called The Orville I yeah think. I think there's and, one more that we're missing but yeah so no yeah I haven't no. seen any of them all right well I've seen like one or two episodes of each I, I've I, never seen an Orville episode I saw them in the original graining is what yeah, I saw them in. I, not a fan anyways <laughs> Jay Garcia uh, continues to write about Hyperion and says that actually it's a study and that the study is all about the final fate of the individuals and about humanity in terms of human, scientific, and secular systems under the cover of mysticism and religion. Now, when so I this read is, this quote, yeah. it, it caught me because it gave me a sense of why possibly I felt like I was reading it wrong or like I was getting the wrong thing out of it mm-hmm. because if this is correct, right. Then it's almost like the, the book is not meant to be, um, read as a story that you're trying to figure out mm-hmm. so much as it's a book that is meant to trigger in you sort of your own reflection on, you know, <laughs> humanity in terms of human scientific and secular systems yeah it specifically says that it's about eschatology and that uh while it seems like it's about eschatology from a religious perspective it's actually from a secular perspective now just in case there's someone who's listening who doesn't know what that is you should define it as quickly as possible uh let me let me pull it up because the way i say it is probably going to sound like something from an avengers movie uh Eschatology is the part of theology that's concerned with death, judgment, and the final destiny of the soul and humankind. So I think what this person, Garcia's argument is, is that 
Simmons' work here in Hyperion is eschatology, but it's not based on theology. It's based on secularism. Yeah, it's pulled out of any religion that we know here. You know, it's 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 giving us a. Although I gotta say, the whole tree of pain and its potential to be just a sort of um, matrix-style rendered, uh, you know, experience that's actually hallucinatory just sounds like someone trying to explore the idea of what hell actually is. Yeah, possibly. I mean, I, I, I tend to wonder if we read the other three books, if these answer, these questions would be answered for us. I, you know? I think we should hit this one more time. This book yeah. ends before anything happens in the yeah. sense that it's a pilgrimage to a planet where they're going to meet a horrific being who is going to kill six of them and answer the prayer of the seventh. And it well, ends when they start walking towards wherever they're going to find this thing. I, I, so having done the research, I understand that it is one book split into two. Oh, However, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying like, I do oh, this think so it's wrong. pretty elegantly rendered in that if those other books were never published, I think this sits on its own pretty well. Absolutely. You could say, you know, I don't think it actually matters. I've learned so much about these exactly. people. It doesn't matter what happens, yeah. but it still does end before a, a set of mm-hmm. lives are concluded. It's about the journey and not the destination. So Garcia finishes off by saying, and this is the conclusion of the argument about it being secular. I recommend that you go read their article, which we'll have links and citations to on our landing page. Uh, but Garcia says the pilgrims of the story each secularize the eschatological nature of the fall of humankind by having the ruling God systematically replaced by ruling laws, natural laws, and universal laws, so that science displaces God and usurps his authority. Now, Chris, you know I like to go looking at popular reviews, especially on Goodreads of books I'm reading. Yeah. yeah. And I especially like to read the bad reviews, the one stars. Of course you would with this one. And there were a few folks who were very vocally pissed off at the book and declared it to be Mm anti-Christian, which Mm -hmm. threw me. I I wasn't really sure what was going on. Yeah, I I didn't get that at all. But, you know, I'm sure somebody listening to this podcast can consider it anti-Christian. Well, I think here's the here's the work to get you to it being an anti-Christian text. I don't think that um, Garcia is calling it that. But if you were to say, um, you know, this book is all about replacing God with science. Yeah. Replacing God with natural laws. Um, then you could say it is a attack on religion. I think that you have to work to get mm. there. I see what you're saying. I think the that argument, if people are making it, is reductive because they're connecting a claim to data without having any warrant in between that makes any sense. Like that draws a line between them. And I think the evidence we have for that is way back up in the beginning of the episode when we were talking about Simmons and his approach to writing this. He specifically said, I'm not anti-religion and, you know, I'm far from it. The stuff that I wrote about the Catholic Church is just me imagining if you took this thing to its logical conclusion 700 years in the future, what would it look like? Yeah, but but there is a lot of surface religious connotation to all these things that yeah, I think can yeah. can totally um if not confuse 
than focus a reader's intentions on um, the wrong ball. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't know, man. I have very little patience for that kind of stuff, honestly, because usually it's directed at uh, stories that don't deserve it. Like, uh, take Philip Pullman and the His Dark Materials books. Man, people do rake him over the coals, but mm-hmm. isn't he also vocally atheist? He is. not. Yeah, so it's a, that's a different example than this. My experience reading those books was that he wasn't like beating you over the head with how bad religion was. It was more like, again, like a complex interrogation of what these elements mean together. Yeah. Hey, listen, I, I read a review of the movie Mandy recently where the, someone said, it's anti-Christian and so I won't watch it. Oh, it totally is anti-Christian. Anytime you have two chainsaws in a fight together in a movie, that is the opposite of what Jesus would want. Sounds right to me. Okay. There is so much exploration of the Hyperion universe Mm -hmm. and what it allows people to think about. Like um, a writer uh, who goes by W.A. Senior um, says that It will come as no surprise to his readers that the Chaucerian framework of the novel Hyperion initiates and formulates Simmons' intent to use sundry kinds of tales, narrators, and narrative structures in developing the complex and contradictory arc of the first two Hyperion novels, an armature that persists throughout his oeuvre. That hurts my head. This is a a declaration of metafictional intent. On Simmons' yeah. part. If, if, uh, if I'm correct, I think this is the... Yeah, it is. This is the article that's all about whether it's fantasy or not. Right. And, and I Which think brings also, us right around full yeah. circle to the Library of Congress. And the point of the article often is, uh, well, you don't know, and that's what he meant. And that's why he did it. <laughs> <laughs> they say things like this. They say, Simmons invokes and employs many of the staple elements of fantasy in these books to challenge readers' genre expectations through a literary osmosis that reveals figures, tropes, conventions as being science fiction and fantasy or fantastic elements concomitantly. Well, here you go, Chris. I, I, and let me answer it with this. I am not arguing, senior writes, if you will remember, that the Hyperion books are fantasy novels or that they belong to some hybrid genre of science fantasy, but that fantasy elements form the causal center from which the science fiction narrative ramifies and then ironically sustains its evocative allure. Okay, so this is kind of interesting. It's just uh, the style of academic writing is making it difficult for me to pierce their argument. So, uh, you know, for instance... It sounds like they're saying, hey, this is labeled as science fiction when you go to the library, but actually there's some fantasy stuff in here, too. And that's what's so great about it is it's like if you go back to the Library of Congress's genre definitions, (laughs) it's doing both things at the same time, man. Whoa. You know, you found a quote from Simmons himself that is like a response to this or or Mm. sort of a uh, an okay, I'll talk about it. you know, to this kind of article. Simmons says, we're talking about reading protocols. We're talking about audience expectation, but also protocols. You want to get into a certain mode when you read a certain type of book. And I, I do believe this is my problem with the book. As a writer, I've exploited that with some of my science fiction. All the protocols are assumed, so now you can read. On the other hand, I take great pleasure in defying certain protocols and expectations 
when I find myself wanting to go a certain way as a reader, much less as a writer, I like to violate it. I enjoy fiction that surprises me that way. So this is a thing he does on purpose. So this is not just a guy who wants to write one book that's horror and one book that's science fiction. He wants to weave in and out of all of those things within each text and challenge your assumptions about what you're going to get in a book based on what the cover looks like. Yeah. And confound the sort of moment to moment movements of a narrative. He says that he uh, tries to understand himself as a reader so that as a writer, he can um, make it harder to read it or or make it less comfortable to read it, Mm -hmm. less standard to read it. So in some kind of an attempt to wrap up this episode, how does that, how, after reading all of this research by all of these different people and, and including Simmons saying, this was my intention. I'm trying to do this like complex literary piece of work that is interrogating genre and what, what genre means and what we think of as genre. Does that, how does that gel with your experience of actually reading the book? Well, it it doesn't at all. And I think that partly that shows me that having Hyperion as homework, even if it's, you know, welcomed homework, you know, this was a co-producer episode. We are delighted to have the support of people and to be pushed into areas that we wouldn't normally discuss um, media artifacts. It still was an assignment, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And reading it as an assignment already put me in a, a sort of, um, trudging place or, or reluctant readers space. Um, I think because I'm just getting crankier and crankier as I go and Simmons sort of, um, games, you know, his writerly games, but also his intent in violating genre protocols of disrupting reader expectations made it harder for me to get through the book because I was reading it on us like under duress and I would probably have a completely different experience if I sort of slipped in and then felt like, Oh, I'm, I can't be sure of what's going on here. I never know what's coming next, which is supposed to be a very pleasurable place for a reader. Yeah. It's interesting. The way you're describing Hyperion is almost exactly the way that I described Welcome to the Goon Squad when we did an episode on it. And it is it's interesting because the same arguments that were made for why that is a quality novel uh, escaped me. You know, like I was like, okay, sure. Like I recognize that she's doing all this stuff, but still like my reading experience, I just I just could not stand this book and and the the assumptions it made about the the reader and the audience. Um And I think maybe that's just the difference between like, I'm a trained genre reader. And I think like you skew more literary than I do. Yes, maybe. I don't know. I mean, it almost sounds like an accusation, right? Even though it's not. But I I do think um, maybe my challenge. Oh, here we go. I think that I take pleasure in genre fiction's cliches and protocols Mm. as a break from the challenges that I am willing to accept in literary fiction. 
But you don't like mixing the chocolate and the vanilla together. I have not mixed the chocolate and the vanilla. And in fact, if someone had just told me, hey, this is um, this is uh, ice cream that's hard for you to eat, I would have been totally okay with it. But since someone said, hey, here, have some vanilla, I said, fuck, there's chocolate in it, you bastards. You've been listening to Super Context, a podcast autopsy of media. How it's made and how it informs our everyday culture. Our theme music is Human Factor by Mile Marker. And right now you're listening to Drive Fast by Three Chainlinks. Show notes and all our past episodes are available at supercontextpodcast.libson.com. You can email the show at supercontextpodcast at gmail.com to tell us what you like, what you don't like, and to suggest topics for future shows. And I'm available on Twitter as at Christian Sager. And I'm there at Bennett Radio. Two N's, two T's.